Today we've got a hot topic to discuss on Elements of a Garden, our podcast celebrating 20 years of Native Plant Garden Tour at the Theodore Payne Foundation. I'm Evan Meyer, the Executive Director at the Foundation, joined by UCLA climate scientist, Dr. Alex Hall, to unravel his garden into all sorts of different ideas about the current time, the environment, and the bigger picture when it comes to environmental issues. Today, we're talking fire, which is an important aspect of the landscape in Southern California, and in some ways, it also impacts our gardens. Alex, we were just talking off the mic about how fire informs some of the maintenance practices that you do in your garden. Yeah, the plants are, many of them are fire adapted, and that means that if there is a fire that comes through in Southern California, the fires are usually quite um, intense and rapid, and often the landscape is just burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But the plants, you know, have been experiencing that for millions of years, and most of them are adapted to that. And they have different adaptations, but one of them is to re-sprout. I work with one plant in particular called Lemonade Berry, which is a a fantastic large shrub in the the chaparral. If you cut it to the ground, um, it will re-sprout, you know, into a much more beautiful plant. Mm -hmm. And you can also, you know, prune it back and shape it into something that's quite formal. And so I have a a formally clipped Lemonade Berry hedge that um, is meant to create a formal structure in the garden and also indicate to people in the neighborhood that this is a cared-for space and that you know, it's also an effort to speak the language of the other people in the neighborhood because, who are expecting a much more formally organized garden than what a typical native garden would be. So it's a situation where I'm using the fire adaptation to do something that you know helps me communicate visually with my neighbors. <laughs> I'm, well, yeah. I'm not ruining the neighborhood with my native garden. Right, to fall within that typical, you know, boxwood aesthetic of, of a clipped hedge. And, and yeah, lemonade berry is a great choice to do that. Other plants work as well. But I want to touch on what you, you talked about, which is fire being part of the landscape here. And the thing that you mentioned before you talked about creating the hedge was cutting it to the ground, also known as coppicing, which is a horticultural technique where if a plant starts to get a little long in the tooth, maybe not looking as good as it did when it, when it first went in the ground, some plants you can just cut them to the ground and they'll flush all new growth. That's essentially what happens to many plants in the chaparral and coastal sage scrub ecosystems when a fire rolls through. It burns them, but it doesn't kill them. And so when, when the fires recede, there's still life in the roots of the plant and they'll um, sprout a whole new plant. And that's a really cool thing to go out and see in nature. It's also a cool little trick um, in your garden. So coppicing, something that scares a lot of gardeners because it, it's like, I'm really going to cut this thing down. I've, I've cherished this plant. And sometimes tough love is the best type of love uh, for a gardener. So going more into kind of the, the ecosystem outside of our gardens, in this uh, episode, we're going to end up back in gardens and talk about the, this whole issue that we have in California of development and homes being built in fire-prone areas. But I want to save that till after we've done some background discussion on fire as a natural part of the ecosystem here. So you talked about sprouters, but there's another kind of major fire adaptation in our native flora, which is cedars. Um, not cedars like the tree, but cedars, S-E-E-D-E-R-S, plants that reseed after a fire. Have you ever gotten lucky enough to get out to a burned area after a good rain year? Yeah, the Santa Monica Mountains, there after, I forget which fire it was, but a recent one, I, I was out there. and um, Yeah, it's amazing. I know after the Woolsey fire in 2019, there was a, a really good rain year, and the mountains out there were just mind-blowing. 
and you get basically a totally different cycle than, than if they hadn't burned. Um, if the, those ecosystems don't burn, they start to get really dominated by shrubs. There's very little open ground. And when they burn, all those shrubs, although many of them are still alive, they open up a lot of space. And then a lot of plants will then fill that space, um, some of which are called the fire followers, which are these really unique and beautiful um, plants that some of them only which occur reliably uh, after a fire. Yeah, the natural cycle of fire in the landscape before there were people in Southern California is probably something like a 50 to 80 year cycle. So, you know, we think that roughly every 50 to 80 years, the landscapes in Southern California burned. Usually it was some kind of a lightning strike associated with a Santa Ana event that would produce some kind of large fire. Um, And so the plants are, are adapted to that. And so it creates like a different natural cycle. You know, there, we have the rhythm of the seasons, of course, um, here. The wet season and the dry season are the, mm-hmm. are the markers of that. And that's an important rhythm in the ecology. And we work with that in, in our horticulture. But there's another rhythm here, which is, is the fire rhythm. And that's another contributor to biodiversity. If you go to a landscape that hasn't burned for a while, hidden within that is a seed bank mm-hmm. of plants that will emerge when it burns. So there's more species diversity than meets the eye in all these landscapes because the plants that thrive there are different at different times depending on which, which phase you are kind of in this fire cycle. So it's part of the species richness that we have here yeah. that, that we have this fire thing going on. And going back to that post-Wolsey fire, Santa Monica Mountains, I remember one of the dominant species was Facilia grandiflora, which is this beautiful, large-flowered Purple, deep purple flowered facelia that um, is is adapted to those fire conditions, and I, I really like that way of thinking about it, where you kind of have the punctuation of the seasons, you know, going through these cycles of phenology and growth and, and senescence, and then you have you know the the chapters or the page breaks of fire, um, which predate humans arriving. Um, in pre-colonial eras, there was a much healthier relationship between the people who lived here and fire and a lot of interesting research and cultural historical knowledge of fire as a tool to maintain ecosystems for for gathering for for good hunting grounds which i think is really interesting and needs a lot more attention and then you have the colonial era era when fire suppression kind of became the modus operandi for for how we maintain lands can you just talk about what the kind of the legacy of fire suppression in land management has done uh, throughout Southern California? Yeah, as you mentioned, the um, indigenous peoples were very adept at cultivating and, and encouraging certain plants by exploiting the fire adaptations. And, you know, that's because they were using the plants as food sources and, and sources for other other uses like basketry and mm-hmm. like that. So. It was like a technology in a way um, yeah. th- to be able to work with the, with the natural rhythms and, and encourage the plants that, that were useful to them. And then in the colonization, um, the mentality has been that fire is destructive and that we have to stamp it out. Um, in our forested landscapes, that's been especially problematic. Um, so I'm talking about the landscapes that are not so common in Southern California, except in the very highest elevations, but more like in the Sierra Nevada. This is uh, Smokey the Bear country. Yeah, where, where um, you know, where fire has been suppressed. And if you look at, like, images of Yosemite um, in the 1920s versus now, it's a lot less forested in the 1920s mm. than it is now. There's And that's that accumulation of biomass in the forests has been 
replicated all throughout the forest in the, in the western U.S. And part of the reason why we've had this megafire era emerging, this era of very destructive fires for property and for ecosystems and for, and for human life, um, is partly because we've had this buildup of fuels in the forested landscapes. Mm. And that is very different from the way that the Native Americans um, interacted with those landscapes where they, they promoted the thinning of vegetation through controlled burns yeah. and what we call cultural burns. And that led to a much healthier relationship with the, with the ecosystems. Again, working with the natural rhythms instead of trying to suppress them. In Southern California, though, you know, because it's a little bit different dynamic, the fires are, you know, they're very wind-driven, very Santa Ana wind-driven. We talked about that in our Getting other, other discussion. Air. Air. And if you light a, light a fire during a Santa Ana event, it'll blow across the landscape and produce a big fire, right. kind of no matter what. So the fuels piece of it is not as important in Southern California. Um, so it's a little bit different story in the chaparral, and that's a little bit more relevant to us, you know, when it, when it comes to fire. Yeah. That's one of the things that in the kind of the public conversation around fire, it doesn't happen to be super nuanced typically. And, and I think it's really important to recognize that fires are different in different parts of the state. A big forest fire that's mostly trees burning in Northern California is going to have different dynamics, different drivers, um, different repercussions than a fire here in the Chaparral. And we're probably, like in the chaparral, you know, the, the human impact is different too. Like in the forests, we have too much fuels because of fire suppression. In the chaparral, where fires are very hard to control, we've had too many fires because there's too much ignition going on. There are too many people out there having campfires or gender reveal parties with fireworks. And, <laughs> um, and so we have probably fire a little bit too frequent in those landscapes. And so we need to be much more careful about preventing ignitions in, in Southern California so there's, there are different right. responses, right, in different, different places. Different responses and different ecological cycles, too. You know, one area where fire has been suppressed but was an important component of a healthy ecosystem are in the giant sequoia groves. And those trees are adapted to withstand fire as well as redwood groves. Just a, a few months ago, I visited a, a state park uh, just south of San Francisco that had just been through a burn. And, and it was pretty incredible to see the trees charred. Um, had gone through a big fire event, but they were all re-sprouting, and it was quite beautiful. And the understory was a dense thicket of ceanothus, and it almost so it was almost like this redwood forest emerging from a shrubland kind of chaparral ecosystem. And so it, it almost interestingly it kind of had this analog to what happens in the chaparral when those shrubs burn. You have these annuals and perennials come in and and do really well for a few years, and then kind of get shaded out. Same thing likely will be happening in in those forest ecosystems. So. In, in either case, um, when fire it hasn't been suppressed and it hasn't, uh, it's not much more intense or frequent, it is a regenerative process. It's like coppicing those plants in your garden. It may be scary and it may be destructive uh, in some ways, but it's going to uh, lead to, to regrowth and, um, and a new ecosystem and a new cycle. We might call that quote-unquote good fire. You know, yeah. This is fire that's low, maybe medium severity fire that in a forested landscape clears out the understory, sets the stage for the next cycles. And there are also animal species that specialize in those post-fire mm -hmm. environments too. And it's an ecological niche for animals too. And so we really have to, it just underscores that we have to somehow find a way to make friends with fire. We can't see it as the enemy. We have to see it as a partner. 
And that's very at odds with the way we've been thinking about it. We probably all have some friends in our life who are <laughs> kind of like fire. Like they can be really good or they can be not so good and slightly destructive depending on you know which way the wind blows. And maybe maybe there's ways to use their fire for good. You know? For each of our five episodes, we've asked a different member of the Theodore Payne Foundation staff to pick a plant that reminds them of that theme and describe it. My name is Erin Johnson, and I'm the Director of Public Programs at Theodore Payne Foundation. And when I think about fire, the plant that first comes to mind to me is the fire poppy. And this is a, a really, it's a small plant. Uh, if you're familiar with the California poppy, it's similar in its size, and uh, except that the flowers, instead of having that really smooth and shiny petals, have this kind of crinkly orange petals and in the center, this bright yellow, and the stamens just shoot out, and it looks like a little mini firework. The first time I encountered this flower was back in the spring of 2019. I was hiking my favorite trail in the Santa Monica Mountains, and it was about six months after the Woolsey fire had swept through, and this was a devastating fire that burned nearly 100,000 acres. And so it was a drastically different. You know, I've seen this landscape through many different seasons, and it was a bit shocking to walk in and see what had once been this thick, impenetrable coastal sage scrub was now a very open landscape, and it was filled with these charred skeletons of plants. And, you know, at the, at the base, at the feet of these skeletons, there was a lush carpet of green with hundreds of these soft yellow flowers and you know the structure and the color of just the individual flower itself if you squint your eyes they almost look like little flames uh, with yellow at the center and this orange petals radiating outwards. I'd hiked this trail 20 times over the years and had no idea that these seeds were sleeping there in the soil and this experience really opened my eyes to a different kind of scale of change that's not just seasonal over the course of a year, but happening on a much larger scale. This is known as ecological succession, and this scale is happening on you know, 50 to 100 years. And it really opened my eyes to a different kind of cycle of change that's not just seasonal, but happens on a much larger scale, uh, looking at 50 to 100 years of change in an environment. And this plant is a great reminder that fire is transformative and powerful and is actually a requirement for life. Here in California, we have about 200 native plant species that are known as obligate cedars, meaning that they will not germinate without, without fire in the landscape. And so while we experience it here as a very destructive and scary force, and in our lives, we have it in this very uncontrolled environment at a campfire, you know, on the stove in our kitchen. But this is just an extraordinary element. And looking at it through the scale of ecology really helps us put that into perspective. So outside of the land management for, for those wildlands and, and how we manage the vegetation that ultimately may become the fuel that would burn in a fire. There's another big elephant in the room here, which is we've put 
people and homes and properties right within areas that we know are going to burn at some point. So how do you sort of think about this um, intersection, this, this place where human habitation starts to leave these urban cores and head out into uh, landscapes that, that are prone to fire? So we have you know, quite a bit of housing in the urban wildland interface, and obviously we have to take steps to protect those people and their property. There's firewise landscaping, and there's, there are gardening techniques that use native plants also to um, help protect homes. Um, there might even be gardens on the tour that, that feature that. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Um, actually, garden number 18 on the tour, the Kaufman Fire Resilient Ranch, is a garden designed with firewise landscaping practices. Um, this is something at Theodore Payne Foundation that we've done a lot of work on over the last few years is getting out the word about how to maintain plants and gardens around a home in those urban wild interface, high fire risk areas, but do so in a way that is um, ecologically friendly. Often human life, which is incredibly sacred and important, but it, the protecting of that sometimes will trump all other variables in the conversation. And what we are trying to get out to the world and studying and, and um, constantly kind of talking about is that there are ways to protect property, protect humans, protect life in a way that doesn't just completely destroy the ecology around uh, the area. And I think that's important knowing that there already are so many homes built into these high fire areas that we continue to work on and develop practices that can, um, can utilize the native ecology to protect from fire. So a couple things that you'll note in a, in a good fire-wise garden are um, defensible space. That's probably the biggest concept, which is just having areas around the home where there's very low or, uh, or little plant material uh, to catch fire and spread to the home. Uh, there's this idea of what they call the catcher's mitt and an oak being a good catcher's mitt. Um, having evergreen trees that can shield the home from falling embers and, and catch those embers before they land on the home. I think that's one of the biggest reasons homes burn down is embers. Yep. that are just have a clear path towards the house and fall on the roof and burn it. So anything that can can protect that. And, and again, the evergreen trees are the best. And then, you know, how, how you prune is really important. So making sure that you're pruning and, and removing brush in such a way that can uh, prevent fire from spreading throughout your property. And then one little thing that is not discussed too often, at least, is that to have a really fire safe home, you're probably going to end up needing to utilize more water, even if it's a native garden, because you want to keep it a little greener and lusher to prevent it from catching fire. I've spoken with water agencies, and they all seem to be aware of that and realize that that's an area where, where a little additional outdoor water use is, is permissible. Well, um, yet another reason to capture water from your roof. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like that, to have that water available, yeah. Yeah, getting back to, to our water conversation of plenty of water uh, is not being utilized, so it doesn't necessarily need to come from the municipal sources, but you know, keeping things a little wetter is, is a good fire protection strategy. And I think, you know, as we go down the road of more people on the planet, more homes are needed. I really hope that the state as a whole can look at how much needs to be spent to protect homes from fire, what the insurance costs are, what the risks are, and what the ecological implication is of building in those places to begin with, let you know, outside of the fire conversation, and hopefully discontinue the practice of building homes in high fire areas. 
Yeah, that, I think that's clear. We have to oppose development in the urban wildland interface. Um, you know, I think protecting the people and the properties that are there is important, but equally important is preventing more development in those places. And But we need to have homes. We have a housing crisis in California, and that's a big consideration as well. So I think that means doubling down on, you know, building in our urban environments yep. and that, by the way, dovetails with other environmental goods like creating walkable neighborhoods, reducing automobile use, promoting public transportation. All that requires a certain type of housing yep. and urban fabric. I think these these things are all compatible with one another. That infill development, which is challenging, there's issues associated with it, but people love a, a walkable neighborhood. They love to go to a local bar or a restaurant. They love to go to their coffee shop. And I think it's important that environmental solutions be open to hearing, you know, what people already want, you know, what standard of living people are looking for, and, and also think about it from a human perspective. Um, because if we just impose things or, or make statements that people don't adapt, it, we're not going to go anywhere. So I think in this situation, it, it is a win-win to look towards more denser urban development in, in Southern California. You know, that's a theme of, of environmental progress, that to achieve environmental goals, we have to work with people's preferences. We have to work with the systems that we have. And the path towards protecting nature is, is always through people, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> So we have to think about that. And wildfires is just a perfect example of, of how that works. So it, it's a it's a destructive forest, but it's also a regenerative forest. And looking in mid-January, like we're going to have a good spring, if you're on the wildflower hunt, I would recommend looking at places that have burned in the last year or two because you're going to see a whole different suite of plants there. Yeah, the wildflowers are particularly good at funding the post-fire landscapes, right? The wildflowers are pretty adept. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, an interesting little tangent here. We talked in one of the earlier episodes about genetic adaptation within one species. I remember reading a study by John Keeley, who's a, a really well-known fire scientist here in California, where he looked at one species of plant, and if I remember correctly, it was Emenanthe pendulifera, I believe is the name. <laughs> don't quote me on that. What's the common name of that one? What is? I have I, no I, idea. I, I, don't know, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's even. like a little. It's like a little annual species. It's got these cream-colored little kind of pendulous, dangling flowers. Um, I think it's pretty, and I'm pretty sure that's the plant he was working on. But there's populations that occur in the desert, and populations that occur on the mountainside, where, where you know, out in the desert, wildfire is really not part of the historical ecology of, on the coastal side of this montane California it is. And so he looked at the seeds from populations on either side of the mountains and did germination studies. And he found that the ones from the desert just germinated without any special treatment, whereas the ones on the coastal side of the mountains needed to have this special fire treatment to germinate. So they were basically adapted to wait for the post-fire conditions. And that was an adaptation within one species. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that the plants are adapted to extremes and responding to extremes and even within the same species, different types of extremes really speaks to the incredible resilience. You know, the wildflowers yeah. are, I mean, I have a lot of wildflowers in my garden and I think it's just so, their lifespan is so interesting to me. They germinate when there's quite a bit of rain and they have this incredibly exuberant life they live really hard and yep. they have they have like an amazing flower display and then they just die live fast die young. yeah exactly and and they really are set up to spend the lean times as seed and not as a living plant yeah and that's true for wildflowers that are designed to live through the seasonal drought as seed and also as wildflowers that are set up to survive the decades of 
time in a post-fire landscape before the next fire comes. I mean, it's kind of incredible that, you know, yeah. again, you look at these landscapes and you can't see the species that are actually there because they're in seed form and not in plant form. But when the fire comes, they emerge again. I mean, it's just so cool. Yeah. And it's kind of unfair when we when we say that annuals only live for one year. Because if it's been sitting for 10 years or 20 years or, or who knows, maybe much longer than that, we don't really know. that. There's no upper limit right now on how long California native plant seeds can live. There's an experiment that goes back somewhere around 70 years where they, they've been basically holding a bunch of different types of California native plant seeds in a lab in Colorado. And every so often they'll go and germinate some. And, and in, uh, I want to say it was 2014, uh, I actually got to go and run this experiments myself. Kind of a cool little perk of the job. And they were germinating, in some cases, better than they had when they first went into storage because there's a secondary maturation of the seed happening. So that was decades, oh, many so decades. So they have like an internal clock. That's yeah. th th That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, you know, live, live fast and die young is a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It works for some people. Yeah. Well, I encourage you to all go out and see wildflowers in post-fire areas. I encourage you to think of wildfire as a force and what it does to the plants. And maybe think about yourself as the wildfire in your garden from time to time. Copy some of those plants, cut them back, um, and they will re-sprout for you. Not all of them do, but a lot of yeah, them do. Yeah. yeah. Know, know your plants before you do that because <laughs> some of the plants will not take kindly to that at all <laughs> yeah. and you'll have a lot of stumps in your garden that are dead if, if you do that but it's a fascinating and important part of our environment here in southern california and a big part of what shapes the ecology and the plants and fire itself is shaped by so many of the things we've talked about today by the by the land masses that affect the climate by the rains that have or haven't come and, and what that will do with the fires and the big one is by the wind and by those santa annas that often are the source of fire during the fire season a great summary. So we're going to end that uh, for our fire episode. And we have one final episode of Elements of a Garden where we're going to bring it all together and talk about that mysterious fifth element, which depending on your system that you're using for our medieval elements here, it may be called ether. It may be called void or in the paradigm that I like the best, which is the captain planet elements. It is heart. So we'll see you next time to talk about heart. Heart.